Joining me today is Gary Arndt, who's been traveling the world since 2007. His travels have taken him to over 130 countries, he's visited over 400 UNESCO World Heritage Sites, and all 50 of the US states. He has an award-winning travel blog called Everything Everywhere, and is also one of the most awarded travel photographers of the decade. Gary is also a podcast producer and a podcast host, and as well, he's an accomplished public speaker who's spoken on travel topics and new media on all six continents. Gary, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Now, I understand that you normally spend a good part of the year traveling. What does an avid traveler like yourself uh, end up doing during a global pandemic? Uh, actually, I launched a new podcast. That's kind of what I've been doing. So that's been keeping me busy. But other than that, I haven't really traveled much at all this year. Right. So let's uh, perhaps wind the clock back a bit and uh, talk about those distant times or what seems like distant times now before the pandemic, when we were all able to go flying and doing all and uh, travel. So you've obviously done a lot of flying uh, over the globe. Can you talk a little bit about how the air travel experience differs in the different parts of the world? It's not that radically different than what you're going to find in North America, to be honest. Uh, the planes, for the most part, are the same. You know, you may have different models, but, you know, you have rows of seats and economy class seats and everything else. Airports are, by and large, the same uh, because there are international standards that have to be followed in terms of security and check-in and things like that. So it's not like you have radically different experiences. Uh, you're going to see more variation for, say, taking a train or a bus than you're going to with flying. With the exception of if it's like not a commercial flight or if it's a short flight, you're taking a bush plane or a float plane or something like that, that'll be quite different. But uh, normal commercial air travel has become, I think, pretty normalized around the world. Right. And now we often hear about how people talk about things like um, how huge London Heathrow is or how much they dislike, you know, airports in New York or whatnot. But I'm curious about some of your more offbeat or unique air travel experiences, like any particularly interesting or unusual airports, uh, airlines, planes that you've traveled with, either commercially or non-commercially. Uh, but I'd love to hear your insights on those. Uh, I've been on a, so I, I did one flight up to Hudson Bay in Manitoba and it was on a, a short bush plane. And when they came to pick us up, we literally had to dig the plane out of the sand. So wow. it was just like, if you've ever had a car stuck in the winter, you know, and you had to like dig it out, it was that, but with an airplane. Um, so that way it was a, it was a small beaver plane and they're, they're really rugged and they have a very short takeoff area. So you don't need a whole lot of runway. And it was just like a gravel strip that we, that it landed on. Uh, but that was interesting. I remember in the Solomon islands, uh, it was a commercial flight technically on Solomon air, but we, it was like being on a chicken bus. So most of the seats on the airplane were taken up by groceries. I remember there was a mattress that was rolled up and a whole bunch of other stuff, uh, not in the cargo hold. I don't even know if there was a cargo hold. It was just in the seats and that's what everybody was uh, that, that's how they transported everything. And probably the coolest thing I ever done in terms of air travel, uh, was landing on a nuclear aircraft carrier. I managed to land on the USS Harry S Truman. And then I stayed overnight. And then the next night I was launched off the carrier on a plane as well, which very few people get to do. Wow, those are three very remarkable stories. Uh, I, I have to ask, I guess, in 
in all three cases, in Manitoba, Solomon Islands, and on the, the aircraft carrier, uh, where were you going on those trips? Uh, well, for the Solomon Islands, I was going to Rennell Island. So it's an island off the main archipelago. It's a World Heritage Site. It's the largest raised coral atoll in the world. And the landing strip was just a literally a strip. It was a grass strip cut out of the forest. The villagers would watch the plane come in. And then when the plane came in, they'd all gather around. In Manitoba, I was going up to a lodge called the Nanook Polar Bear Lodge. And it was an old geese hunting lodge, actually. But I went up there to see polar bear. It was in late August, I think. And that's how you got in and out. And then I was invited by the U.S. Navy to visit the USS Harry S. Truman. They were doing training exercises off the coast of Virginia. And they flew us out there on an A2 Greyhound, which is the small cargo planes that are used for aircraft carriers. So they can do carrier landings and takeoffs. And the wings fold up so they can, can store them on the flight deck. And uh, we did that. And, and getting launched from an aircraft carrier, I should say, is probably the, the highest acceleration any human's ever going to experience in their life. Um, we actually were sitting backwards. So normally in an airplane, you're, you're facing the front. Everyone's facing the same direction. You're facing backwards. And you actually had a four-point harness that you had to put on. So not just a regular seatbelt. And you had to put your legs up on the seat in front of you because the G-forces you're going to hit would cause your limbs to fly forward because your body's going to be thrown back so fast. And you're, you're doing it. You're getting ready for it and getting ready for it. When it finally happens, I almost passed out because the, the, the acceleration was so great. But yeah, it was a cool experience. Right. Now, this is deviating perhaps a little bit from uh, from what uh, what our listeners might be able to do in terms of air travel. But I, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that aircraft carrier experience. So I'm just trying to picture this. So you're sitting there and you, you have your legs propped up. Do, do, do they sort of prep you on how this is going to happen or do they sort oh, of yeah. just let you figure out? Uh, let you see no, how- no, they they tell you and you're wearing uh, eye covering. So you're wearing goggles. You're also wearing ear covering. So you're wearing those big soundproof, you know, earmuffs. Plus you have uh, uh, earplugs inside your ears as well because it's really, really loud. And you have jets and everything, you know, going on around you. So you get launched. And then once you're up in the air, you know, after a couple of minutes, you can take off the goggles and the, the ear protection. But you're not only are you really kind of tightly held there, but all your senses are kind of dull because you can't really hear anything. You can't really see as well because you have goggles on and it's, it's a weird experience. Wow. Yeah. That, uh, that really does sound uh, super extraordinary and remarkable. And I am sure that uh, you've also had some not so great experiences with flying. I was wondering if you could tell us about perhaps uh, a bad experience that you've had with air travel. I hate long flights. Like I really, and I, I was on the longest flight in the world at the time, which was Dallas to Sydney. And that was not a good experience. It, 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 I'm not saying the airline was bad or the, you know, the flight service is bad or anything like that. A toilet got backed up. I just hate long flights. Like I, I would rather fly to Iceland, stay overnight and then fly to Europe than fly nonstop to Europe just because I hate flying that much. Uh, or I should say I hate long flights and any really long flight for me is just awful. One of the worst days I had, 
I had to go from Punta Arenas, Chile, which is in the far south of Chile, to Bangkok. And there are no direct flights between South America and Asia. So I had to go from Punta Arenas to Santiago, to Atlanta, to Tokyo, to Bangkok. And from door to door, from leaving my hotel to leaving my hotel, I want to say it was 52 hours. Wow. And that was a horrible experience. And actually, I ponied up to uh, get access to the lounge when I was in Atlanta so I could take a shower just because that was awful. I ended up doing it too in, in Narita, but it was a lot easier to do it. You could just, just rent a shower. Wow, that's pretty much actually more than two full days of being not on the road, but I guess uh, on in the air and in airports, eh? Yeah, and you're just exhausted by the time you arrive because you didn't, you know, I don't sleep very well on planes. I wasn't flying business class or anything. So it was just kind of awful. Now, since you aren't a huge fan of long flights, could you talk a bit about your process for planning and booking your flights and your itineraries in general? It's usually, there's no magic behind it. It's whatever I can get at whatever. Usually it's by price more than anything else. Uh, and if I'm cashing in points or something, then I'm probably, again, going to be looking at getting the cheapest I can because I would rather fly twice than double it and fly first class because I have a very difficult time justifying business class on a flight because let's say you're on an eight-hour flight to Europe. That's eight hours of your life. And think of the cost differential between economy and business. At what other point in your life would you spend that much money for a slightly nicer seat for eight hours? You don't get there any faster. You know, your luggage arrives with everybody else, but you can pay $1,000 or more for a slightly nicer seat with a little bit more legroom for an eight-hour period. And to me, that's just crazy. I just can't, I have a, a hard time justifying. If someone's going to pay it for me, I'll gladly take it. But I just, I have a very hard time, you know, justifying that. And I seem to recall reading that you have a similar approach towards staying in hotels. Is that right? Yeah, I don't stay in a fancy, fancy hotels. I don't see the point. Uh, a hotel is a room is a place you are going to be unconscious for the majority of the time you are there. So you're not going to be seeing it. You're not going to be doing anything. So I would rather spend less and spend two nights at a lesser hotel than one night at a better hotel because I just don't see the the value in it. Now, you also touched on this a little bit briefly um, in terms of your cashing in, you said points or your miles. Would I be right in assuming that you're also an avid collector and user of points and miles and that you probably have elite status with at least one airline, if not more? Uh, I used to. I don't anymore. Uh, because I'm not often booking my own tickets, someone else is doing that for me and paying for it. I usually don't have a lot of control over where I'm flying, or I should say what airline I'm flying. So I had stuff all over the place. At one point, I had elite status on three different airlines, but I didn't the point in it because I don't see the 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 point in like silver level status anymore because the benefits are so small and you can get a lot of those benefits by just having their credit card. You know, cuz the the benefits they give you for having the card are often the same ones they'll have at say silver tier status. And then you have to fly so much 
And as I mentioned, I'm not a fan of flying. So I'd rather go to Europe, spend two months there and fly back rather than, so I, so I'm not necessarily flying a lot, even though I'm traveling a lot. How do you like to spend your time on, on planes and while you're at the airport? Uh, usually I'll read and go through podcasts. That's kind of my opportunity to catch up on podcasts. Do you find it hard to get work done uh, when you're when you're flying? Yeah, because you can't on a an economy class seat, you can't use a laptop. The seats are now so small. And I have a 15-inch laptop that if I open it, I literally cannot put the laptop on the seat in my chest. And it's not like I'm that huge, but you just you can't do it. And I don't see a lot of people using laptops anymore in economy. Anyhow, They're, they have to at least be an economy plus or something like that to, ha- to get the, the few more inches where you can actually put a laptop in. Mm-hmm. And laptops are not necessarily getting smaller uh, and smaller either as well. <laughs> I mean, I suppose if you had one of those keyboards they now have for like an, an iPad or an iPad, mm-hmm. that would work uh, or it would at least be a bit more comfortable if you just wanted to type or something. But I just, I have a very hard time using laptops on planes uh, to the point where I basically don't do it. At mm-hmm. this, you know. No, I feel the same way too, especially in, in economy class. I'm not, I'm, uh, I'm also not a very big, big person. I'm on the smaller side, but um, e- even so, there's only so, so much time you can spend there sort of hunched over, hunched over your laptop on that, on that tray table if you're, if you're in economy, right? To move on a bit, um, if, You've done a lot of flying, of course, and I'm sure you've seen a lot. Um, you've experienced a lot. What are some of your uh, pet peeves, either things that airlines and airports do or fellow passengers do? Oh, boy. Uh, I think the sticking your feet in the air, or taking your shoes off is probably a big one. Uh, you know, one of the things I do when I fly now is that I never eat on flights. Uh, I, I just fast whenever I'm flying, regardless of the length of the flight. And it isn't so much the quality of airline food, although that's certainly part of it, but it's the fact that you're so constrained when they put that tray down in front of you and then you finish your meal and then it usually sits there for a half an hour and you know, you can't read your, you you can't move around. Not that you could move around much before, but it's even less. So nowadays I just don't eat on planes. Um, so I guess you could just put all of food services part of that. Um, then you just get the people that, you know, the, the screaming baby. I'm always going to sit next to the screaming baby. And the other thing you've noticed if there's like, if the, if the flight is filling up and you have an empty seat next to you, the last person on the plane will always be the one to sit next to you. So you always have those dashed hopes that you have an empty seat next to you and it never <laughs> right. happens. Right. Um, and so we've talked a bit about uh, flying, but I know your, your, your thing, what you like to talk about, and you're really in it for the destination. So if we'll, I'll, I'll just move away from air travel quickly. Um, but can you talk about um, some of the, the destinations that you've been to that perhaps aren't as well known, or, you know, the, they're not the Paris's or the New York's of the world, um, but that you've been able to get to that you would recommend people uh, to, to, to go to. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on, on some of those. Oh, there's so many of them. Uh, and some of them you have to fly to. Uh, you know, that's the other thing. There's as much as 
I kind of don't like long flights. You don't have a choice in a lot of things, uh, especially if you want to go to say some islands in the Pacific, you want to go to Easter Island or something like that. That that's pretty much your only choice. You have to fly and that's it. You know, one of my favorite national parks is Nahani national park in the Northwest territories of Canada. Uh, there are no roads that connect this park to the rest of the world. So if you want to go there, you pretty much have to fly a bush plane or you have to hike. And those are the only two options. And there's quite a few places like that where you, you kind of have to fly. Uh, I was talking about the Solomon Islands. And uh, when I visited the island of Rennell, that was a fantastic experience. I asked them when I was there how many visitors they normally get a year. And this was, you know, this was quite a while ago. This was 2007. But at the time, they said 10. 10 a year. Wow. So there's just not many people that are visiting these places. Uh, I think the, the reason why so many places are popular, the Paris's and the Barcelona's and the Venice's is because they have international airports and they have rentals. And that's why people flock to them. It's because they're accessible. And if you're willing to just deviate from that a little bit, so maybe you get on a train or rent a car or whatever, uh, then you can visit some really cool places. One of the places I always talk about is the city of Padua in Italy. Padua is a 20-minute train ride from Venice. Everyone goes to Venice, but no one goes to Padua, even though it's so close and so easy to do because they know Venice. They know the gondolas and the canals and things like that, but they don't, they don't know it's in Padua, so they just don't bother to do it because so, they're not interested. Now, to wrap up, I want to ask you, from all of your experiences, what's your personal favorite airline and what's your personal favorite airport that you've been to? I think the answer for both of those questions is Singapore. Uh, Singapore Air and uh, Chiangai Airport in Singapore. Uh, best airport in the world. I'd say the other ones that are close would be <laughs> Vancouver and Minneapolis. I think those are also great airports. Probably my least favorite airport is Charles de Gaulle. Never fly through Charles de Gaulle if at all possible. It's, it's just horrible. Uh, especially don't ever transit through Charles de Gaulle. I mean, if you got to go to Paris and you're just getting off the plane, that's one thing. But if you're trying to transit, never, ever, ever, ever transit through de Gaulle. Um, Singapore, I remember flying them first time over 20 years ago. And I was up in the bubble part of the 747 in business class. And it was just a fantastic experience. The, the staff there is amazing. Uh, I've flown them a couple of times since. Cathay Pacific is also uh, very, very high. Cotter Airlines, uh, I've flown with them once. I actually got to fly business class. That was a fantastic experience. For the most part, I would say Asian Airlines are all really good. Uh, you know, At least you're going to find the Asian Airlines in the top tier. Most North American airlines are just all kind of the same. I don't really particularly have a favorite one. Right. And I was actually going to going to wrap up there, but you, you, you brought up an, an interesting point there. There is that reputation out there of Asian airlines being being the Asian and I guess Middle Eastern airline um, being in the, the, the top tier ones out there. And, and I feel and, and I seem to get the impression that you that you sort of experienced that. Is that right? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, there are some discount Asian airlines as well, but even then they're good discount airlines in that they're cheap and, and they get the job done. Uh, I think I flew Tiger Airlines once from 
uh, Bangkok to Singapore. I did a visa run and that was a fine experience. It was super cheap. It was like a hundred dollars for a round trip ticket. Um, but by and large, yeah, there's just nothing about, you know, people say, Oh, you know, they prefer Delta or American or United. It's like, don't care. They're just all kind of the same. I don't particularly see anything about them. That's great. Uh, one thing I should add, and it's been a while since I've experienced this, was the check-in procedures for Qantas when I was flying domestic in Australia. At the time, it was really slick because you didn't have to deal with a person. You could check your bags, get your baggage uh, ticket, put it on your bag, everything, just walk through, completely automated, and the entire check-in process was the fastest I had ever seen it anywhere. Uh, you know, since 9-11. It was it was really, really efficient and good. And I've started to see their system implemented in some other places. But I'd also give Qantas, uh, in, you know, as a pretty good airline as well. But definitely their, their on-the-ground service was really good. Right. Well, we'll have to wrap up there. But uh, Gary Arndt is an award-winning travel blogger and a photographer. He's flown all over the world and has traveled over to 130 countries. His blog, Everything Everywhere, was named one of the top 25 blogs in the world by Time Magazine, and it features stories about travel, history, and so much more. He also writes and produces a daily podcast. It's called Everything Everywhere Daily, and it features stories about people, places, and things from all around the world. Since 2009, he also has co-hosted This Week in Travel, and that's an award-winning weekly podcast that covers travel industry news. If you want to hear more from him or read his blog, we'll include links to all those and where you can find him on social media in the episode description. Well, Gary, thanks so much for taking the time to be here and for chatting. It's great having you. Thank you for having me.